This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Time to play on the show. Well, it was really exciting early on. The Mariners jumping out to a pretty big early lead. Then it got really excruciating. Oh, boy. And and finally, there was a little bit of exhilaration. And if you came through with any one of a number of reactions, it would have been valid to yesterday's Mariners sweep of the Texas Rangers. They they swept them first time since 2015. It just wasn't as easy as it should have been. I'm trying to work on myself, Danny, and I'm trying to make sure that I stay positive. When good things happen, you take them. And the Mariners getting a sweep heading into a weekend series against Houston, that's really nice. (laughs) The Diego Castillo experience, I would like to put that on the back burner because it was a really good game for Ty France yesterday, wasn't it? He was awesome. Joined us yesterday. He ends up he ends up winning it with a two run homer in the eleventh. He made a great play in the tenth, uh, leaping up to grab. He's not the tallest first baseman you're going to see. Grabbed a high throw and then threw back across the diamond for a very unorthodox double play. Here's here's what we'll do. We're gonna we're gonna go in order. Let's start. Let's start with the excitement. Okay. The, oh man, the Mariners are going to sweep this. Oh, you get this team that's gotten such great starting pitching gets off to a huge boost. Let's go, Mitch Haniger. Mitch Haniger, three-run home run, please. Here's the stretch, and the next off on the way, swinging a fly ball deep to left field, in toward the corner, and this one is gone. Goodbye, baseball. Mitch Haniger with a two-out, three-run home run. Here in the top of the second for Haniger, a career-high 27th home run of the season, and it puts the Mariners on top of the Rangers, five to nothing here in the top of any number two. Number 27, for number 17, Mitch Hattiger, a career high in home runs. How about that? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Feeling pretty good. Only a second home run in August. You got to feel good about that. Yeah, and honestly, it's another reminder that I want to see Mitch Hattiger here for a really long time, especially if this is something that starts him heating up. But yeah, Danny, I mean, they got off to a really nice lead, and I almost made a joke like, the Mariners are slowly working things back when it comes to that run differential. I was feeling good, and it looked like, you know what, this is how games against Texas should go, for the most That's part. exactly right. You just string them up like a pinata yeah. and beat on them. Bam, right? bam, bash them. Wait, wait for the goodies to come spilling out in the, in the form of a five-run ninth-inning lead in which you, you couldn't even be that mad about them getting the bases loaded and what, they, they scored one run out of that oh, on yeah. a walk? Still got to score four more. Right, like you feel like okay, you're all you're all right. Yeah, let's cue the agony. Here is Diego Castillo giving up a game tying tater. Diego looks in, has a sign for Murph. Runners get their leads. Now the one one on the way, swing and a fly ball deep to right field. Going back is Bowers, and this one is gone. Goodbye baseball. Holy smokes! And. Jason Martin has just tied this game at 7-7. Seven to seven. Oh, my God. I saw that, Danny, at the gym. I went to the gym because I thought it was over. Foolish by me because all these games against Texas all of a sudden are real nail biters. I look up, and look, I know it wasn't all Castillo's fault, but, man, the Castillo experience, he had a wild pitch, too. It's turning into Rafael Montero 2.0, man. It's... It's worse than Rafael Montero 2.0. It's worse for this reason. 
you were encouraged to talk yourself into the idea that he was as good as Kevin, Kendall Graveman. I know. Whether or not he was, right? Like it was, you went yeah. and got a closer from a good team, right? Yeah. Like that was, like you were, the, the Rafael Montero was you got a good reliever. This was after the gut punch that was losing Kendall Graveman, hey, we recovered all right. Yeah. Um, you had a stat that I had not seen from Ryan Divish. One out of every six sliders Castillo is throwing, which is that's pretty much all he throws is sliders. That's pretty much all he throws. One out of six of those suckers doesn't move much. Yes, he described it as a cement <laughs> mixer. Oh, good God. Oh, just rubble it right down the middle. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that's terrible. This cued the self-loathing part of the game for me. Yep. There are losses where they're heartbreaking. There are self-loathing losses, and the self-loathing loss is very specifically where you start to feel that this pain is deserved. Like this <laughs> level of, like, yeah, give it to, make this as painful as possible because you don't deserve to have nice things that was so bad. That's how I felt. The wild pitch, the wild pitch didn't mean much, yet I felt that was as bad as anything. I was like, come on! Don't throw wild pitches, and maybe it's because he pretty consistently plunks people. That's the other thing he likes to do is hit dudes in the leg. He likes Diego Castillo likes to hit dudes in the leg. Well, at least that's and this polite. time it was a wild pitch that let a run score. Yeah, so I saw that the wild pitch. Thought to myself, okay, um, it's a wild pitch, no big deal. And he hit a guy, no big deal. You know, it's just this is just part of the experience. The home run, I I was like, are you serious? Why does this keep happening with him? So. Hopefully, things are able to smooth themselves out, but I, I am uh, decidedly out right now on Diego Castillo. Yeah, I, 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 feel, I feel very similarly, but we get pulled back in. We mentioned the double play that was keyed by a very alert throw by Ty France. And in the 11th it was inning— a great play. It was. It was, it was a great heads-up, kind yeah. of just snap throw across. I don't know what—I have no idea what— the runner was doing getting that far down the line, but the Mariners caught him, and then it looked like it was going to be close, and there was a replay. Nope. Nope, they tagged him out. Here's Ty France in the 11th. And the one nothing pitch. DeFrance swinging a shot deep to left field. Martin going back, and this one is gone. Goodbye, baseball. Viva La France. Ty France with a two-run home run in the top of the 11th inning. A line shot homer. His 13th of the year, and the Mariners have the lead 9-7 to here in the top of inning number 11. Oh, je voudrais un bouquet. Oui, monsieur. Yeah, that was great. He was awesome yesterday. Three for six, that play that you mentioned, and the clutch home run, too. We had talked with Jerry earlier. Hey, look, the power, it's, it's mm-hmm. not quite there. Is there something more that you're looking for? We saw it there. He does have some of it deep inside him, and... It came through in a big moment. Right now, I, I I wonder if you were to give the MVP trophy of the Mariners to anyone who you'd give it to. It does feel like with the way that France has steadily played over the last two months. Fran- France has been your most consistent player. Yeah. I, I think I'd probably go to J.P. Crawford. But but France... But that's that's as much because of the, the leadership that I perceive from J.P. Crawford. Ty France has been your most consistent He's been your most consistent baseball steady, player. Steady, man. Year. Just so steady. And and steadily, the average over the last two months has jumped basically a percentage point every two days. He is looking really good out there, and he won you that game yesterday. I felt like the Mariners dodged a bullet. It was one of those, <laughs> oh my sure gosh, did. bank error in your favor. Click. Until I saw Scott Service's reaction. 
If you noticed after Jake Fraley caught that ball that was driven into center field, because it wasn't it wasn't done there. The Mariners gave up a run in the bottom of the eleventh, and there was the the final out. Fraley had to track down on the warning track. When you saw Service's reaction, it was not a normal manager thing. Like there was some not even just enthusiasm, that hell yeah sort of feeling there. Like he was fired up. And then to hear him after the game, it made me... This was more than just a good game or a important comeback. Like this was... This tapped into something that your manager's feeling. He had to... He, a hard baseball man, which is exactly what Scott Service is. Scott Service is a tough-nosed guy who ground out a major league career because of his intensity, because of all of that. Choking back tears talking about how he feels about his team after this game. Just me personally letting him know, you know, how proud I am of this group. It's a, it's a special group. It really is. That's a long day. So, uh, pardon me for getting a little emotional, but I really love this team. I really do. I can see why, because Dude, that hit me right in my feelings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it did. It did because they're professionals and Scott Service has been here six years and I know what to expect from him. And I also know that he's not a dude that's phony about those sort of things. There are times that a manager speaks from the script that's in front of him of how you manage a team. And there are times that a manager talks about what he is feeling about the group of guys that he has, where he truly feels he feels impressed. He feels happy to be coaching them. He feels thankful to be in that spot. Scott Service has got that team right now, and that's awesome. He has somehow found a way to keep them in a spot where they do not respond negatively to moments where you would expect any team to. I mean, when that Diego Castillo inning happened, a lot of teams, I think, at least for one night, would be like, oh, you know, how do you bounce back emotionally from that, especially now in extra inning baseball where all of a sudden the very next inning, you know, after the Mariners went one, two, three really quickly, they got a runner on second base. All of a sudden there's a runner on second and, 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 and third, you're thinking. And, you know, they they still somehow find a way. I don't know what it is to just maintain that, I guess, neutral thinking and do what they need to do. And I could see why he feels that way. They're a young team where you wouldn't expect any of this to happen with. But the mental side of stuff, they really do seem to have some extreme fortitude down there. It's the proud papa. His team's grown up and maybe become tougher than he even expected it to. And he's he's, he's choking back tears right now. We'll talk more about the Mariners. Extend them. We've got a Seahawks preseason game to get ready for. It's time for Front Page News. This, this is the front page brought to you by Dubin Law Group. Today's top two stories and why they matter every morning at 710. Get what you need to know to start your day right now. Fans back at Lumen Field tomorrow night. Who would have thought the day would finally come? But at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, the Seahawks welcome the Denver Broncos to town. You can hear the game, of course, right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. I'm not 100% sure, Danny, how many players of consequence that we will end up seeing in this game, just based off of what we saw in preseason game number one. With that in mind, what are you most curious about? What do you want to figure out coming out of this game? Because you got to be realistic. Who are your starting corners? Give me a glimpse. What's it look like? You're going to have somebody that's going to take a step forward there? 
Trey Brown? Trey Brown going to be ready for more playing time? Is Akella Witherspoon going to be capable of that starting spot? I want to see some cornerback play. I'm on the same page as you, and I want Trey Brown to make a play in this one because I think that Trey Brown might have a little bit more in him than Akella Witherspoon in terms of his ability to close on the football, to close on ball carriers. There's a little bit of extra, I think, speed that he brings that with Witherspoon, it's it's not quite there. Witherspoon's got the size. Someone's got to make a play at cornerback, though, because there was a lot of letting things happen and letting things happen. At least it looked like that in the first preseason game against Vegas. The front page. All right. I thought this was one of the weirder things that I've seen in a college football setting that did not involve Bobby Petrino in a neck brace. <laughs> Nick Rolovich wearing the wide-brimmed hat. It's... It, what kind of hat is it? It's not curved brim. It's not a cowboy hat. It's not a derby. It wasn't not, a bucket hat? No, it's not a bucket hat. It's it's a, it's a canvas style. Anyway, he's wearing a wide-brimmed hat, a mask, sunglasses, Darth Rolo, and he's being asked about whether or not he is going to be vaccinated. As the Governor Jay Inslee's directive said, here was his answer. Oh, I plan on following his, his mandate, for sure. Are you going to wait until the FDA approves the vaccine to get it, or are you planning on getting it soon? I'm just going to follow his mandate, Brenna. Have you talked to any of your other staff members about what their plans are that, that are unvaccinated right now? Um, I, I believe they all plan on following the mandate. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's what the deal is. Is he going to be vaccinated or not? Well, if you're following the mandate, letter of the law, especially given how strict the mandate is here, yeah, right? I mean, if, if you say you're following it, doesn't it mean you're going to get the vaccination? That's, I guess, what my reaction was because I saw a lot of backlash to it, and I thought, well, clearly he's not thrilled about it because he keeps on emphasizing mandate. Which, hey, that's totally his right. Exactly. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't care about that. I, I don't, if you're going to get vaccinated, why not say you're getting vaccinated? Is this an act of resistance in some way? I don't know. I, I mean, that's and here's here's why I would say it's surreal. That is the governor of the state making a declaration, and it's the highest paid state employee and a guy who works at one of two, one one of the two largest public universities, who is a large part of the justification for intercollegiate athletics is that it's an advertisement that it's public relations for your schools, who I would consider being at the very least. Somewhat deliberately vague, not as direct as he could be. He could be more direct at it, and and it it just feels really weird to me. It feels really strange. I, I can understand how some people are reading it that way. For for me, I like I, I think the way that he's saying it. Clearly, he's not thrilled about the mandate. I think he is going to get the vaccination. I think he's just addressing it like that. And you know, not necessarily to his credit, but I think he's been pretty consistent in terms of he hasn't said much along the, the entire time, because if you go back to July when he was first asked about it, it's not like he was bringing out any conspiracy theories or anything like that. He was just like, look, I respect people if they're going to get vaccinated, but yeah, I'm just not. I, I agree with you on that. I don't think, I, I think he's tried to keep it as, as quiet, and it's just that it's an unavoidable thing. And There's a level of clarity of communication that it seems like he's deliberately avoiding there. And maybe it is just because he's mad because he feels pushed into doing it. But there's also, I just found myself like, what, what in the world's going on? It's just surreal. It was was my reaction to it. It is front page news. It did Let's look like get Darth to the, Vader. 
It is uh, time for us to get to the professor. John Clayton joins us for the morning drive. John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor, John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, I suppose we will find out later this afternoon whether or not some of the best Seahawks will play in Saturday night's preseason game. But since we don't know that at this point in time, what are you focusing on the most to find out about this team going into the 2021 season in their game against the Broncos tomorrow night? Well, I think, I mean, I want to see how Rashad Penny can do Mm. because he's going to make his debut as far as the running back to see if he's going to be able to clinch that backup job. Yeah, because I think right now you can look at Alex Collins, and he's done a good enough job to qualify to maybe be the backup. But Penny needs to do some good things. He's down 15 pounds. Uh, you know, he's now finally healthy. He's going to do some things, so I think that's going to be encouraging. You know, kind of watching how the offensive line goes. You know, uh, Jamarco Jones, now that looks like he's going to be healthy enough to play, filling in at the one tackle spot, that should be encouraging. You know, you want to see if they're going to put Brandon Shell out there. Again, we don't know how much they're going to play the starters. I mean, you figure it's got to be a little bit, but not a lot. I know that Denver's going to play the starters, but it's going to be a little bit, but not a not a lot. You know, certainly you want to see at cornerback whether Trey Flowers can bounce back from the two bad plays that he had last week and see how he can do. I and mean, we know there's not going to be any DJ Reed. He's not playing. Uh, still look at the linebacker spot to see, you know, how it looks with, uh, you know, Corey Barton because he did a great job last week with the two sacks. So there's a lot of things to look at in the game tomorrow against Denver. John, we saw several fights at joint practices yesterday. Antonio Brown clobbered somebody. Bruce Arians said later he was just swatting at a fly. Um, we also saw the Rams and the Raiders, and fairly unsurprisingly, in, in my view, start getting into it. Is that why coaches are reluctant to do joint practices sometimes, because they can escalate? Yeah, I think you can see why Pete Carroll doesn't want to get involved in any kind of a joint practice, because sometimes they can get out of control. And with so many that were going on this week, I mean, we saw so much of that. I mean, like, for example, in that Tennessee-Tampa Bay, there was four fights. Four fights, and of course, Antonio Brown ripped off the helmet of a cornerback of Tennessee, punched him in the face, got kicked off the field, and uh, it, and you can see that uh, did it was it a good day of work for the Titans? Well, as it turns out, I mean, uh, I love the fact that Mike Vrabel says, "Hey, we sucked yesterday. We sucked. It was terrible." And so uh, that didn't go over very well. Then, of course, uh, you, you look at the Rams. Uh, joint practice and uh, Sean McVay was so upset with the fights that he ended up taking his team and pulling him off the field and putting him in the bus and saying that's it this is ridiculous we can't continue to do that then you go to Green Bay and of course the New York Jets were there and they end up losing two players for season-ending injuries I mean you know the Carl Lawson blows out an Achilles tendon uh, safety Zane Lewis he tore a pec muscle and also hurt his Achilles tendon uh, suffered an ACL I don't know if it's a, a serious ACL but again the pec muscle so they lose two guys for the season so it's like uh, yeah I mean you know you can you can see that it's nice to be able to scrimmage and do something against another team in a joint practice but it also can be very dangerous and I think we're seeing that right now I mean a lot of fights in some of these things we have seen a lot of fights out there we also got a little more clarity on the NFL's taunting rule. 
I guess per Joe Buck, it's meant to target in-your-face stuff. I'm not exactly sure if that applied to that Colts running back who was called for it, but it's just about not doing it in the, in the direction of someone else. I wonder, though, how referees are going to judge that because that does seem like it's open for interpretation. Yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit too much. I mean, each year it seems like the NFL puts out a rule that's going to be overdone. And obviously they want to prevent any kind of uh, taunting. They want to prevent any kind of potential taunting that's going to lead to fights and everything like that. But this one I think is uh, just maybe a little bit too much because, again, it's like why do you keep going if you're the NFL and putting more things in the agenda for the officials to be able to do? Because it's like, just call the game. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, you got so much going on as far as limiting on the blocking, the cut blocking and everything else. And now you add this. I, I just think it's a little bit too much. But, hey, it's not like they're going to back down and do it. They're going to go through it. I mean, we saw the, the silliness of what they did with the uh, you know, defensive pass interference a couple years ago, which turned out to be a disaster. That was not good. And I, I'm not saying this is going to be a disaster, but I think it's just a little bit too much. We got rid of the replay review of pass interference, though, right? We don't have to worry about that this year, John? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, you know, what, whatever it's going to be, there's going to be more scrutiny in New York on any kind of a replay because, again, it's like, uh, you know, they're, they're doing that, which I, I, that's not too bad because, again, you know, New York's sitting back there and they can get all the views of the TV and all those different things. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that, that may be okay. It sounds like it's going to be now multiple people in New York that are making yeah. these judgments as opposed to one, and I, I feel like that could also get a little bit messy at the very least, cause a little bit longer of a delay as we wait to see some of these replays resolved. Yeah, because, again, you, you go to a football game or you're watching a football game, and it's like, do we really need to see more from the officials? Now, I again, don't. I'm, I'm a big believer in the NFL officials. I think they're the best in sports right now. But also, it's like, keep stop asking them to keep doing more things. Don't delay the game. You're not there to watch the officials. You're there to watch football. Let's not delay things. I mean, I, what I liked about last year is it did, to a certain degree, cut down on the number of penalties. That's good, and I think that needs to continue. But it's like each year they seem to come up with a few things more where it's like, okay, well, the officials are going to stop, play, do this, look at that. It's like, come on, just play football. All right, Professor. We know we got on a sports Saturday. We yeah. got John Clayton from 8 to 11 answering your phone calls. That's right. 8 to 11. We're taking your phone calls. So uh, please give us a call tomorrow and looking forward to that. All right. And then we'll follow your coverage at the preseason game and talk to you on Monday. Thanks, okay. John. Sounds good. That is the Professor John Clayton. You can follow his updates, 710sports.com. And then he is on at 4 o'clock with Wyman and Bob. Well, the Mariners have the most momentum that they have at any point since. Well, it was the last time they played the Houston Astros. Does it turn out different this time? We'll look into that next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Somebody get Aaron Rodgers on the phone. I know. There's Let a new know. opening. Jeopardy host. <laughs> Is Aaron Rodgers going to retire again? I Dude know. just quit. Yeah, Mike Richards, uh, he, he just stepped down as host of Jeopardy. We just saw that a couple of minutes ago. Not a lot of resilience in that fella, but... Hold on. Hold on, though. Shouldn't we respect the game that he ran? 
Like that dude was the executive producer of that show and hired himself over a bunch of other way more famous people to be the Jeopardy host. Well, like, that was wild. I'm sure he vetted them out and thought to himself, you know, uh, the best person for the job. It's going to make me a lot of money. Me. Oh, like, like, think about that. He picked himself and he almost got to the end zone. Like he dropped the ball on the way into the end zone. <laughs> anyway, not a whole lot of resilience, at least on that guy's front in terms of standing in the pocket. But I'm telling you, get let, let Rodgers know we can still sink this Packers season. Let's go. Let's go, Green Bay. Come on. You know, you can screw this up, Brian Gutekunst. Just try. Just try. All you have to do is try. We talked with Jerry Depoto yesterday, and he made an interesting comment about what the Mariners have been this season in terms of what their resilience has been. It was a really funny, I think, comparison. This team has been roughly in every game we've played all year long, and if we get down two or three runs, they just keep clawing back. And, you know, they're, they're, they're like the, the feisty kid on the block who has the, the bully holding their head back, and they just keep on swinging. <laughs> and more often than not, they <laughs> land it. A violent comparison, but an apt one in that they're just hanging around. They're, I guess, sort of like Ralphie in Christmas, <laughs> in Christmas yeah. story, where all of a well, sudden they get the one they they get the leg up every now and then on the bully, even though that bully's taking him to task every single day. Yeah, it, it does. It does seem like it, right? And there's like been three or four times where it's like, okay, are the Mariners really serious? And then they fade back, and you're like, yeah, not really. Not really. And then they get up off the mat and they come back swinging again. And they've they've done it again. They went four and nine after the trade deadline, after the trade deal of Kendall Graveman, right? And yep. we could sit here and go through like, was it an emotional sucker punch that that kind of flattened them? They blew some games in the bullpen, though. You can't blame all of those on Graveman because he doesn't usually pitch even in back to back games. And Toro was hitting all of those different things. And you get to the end of it, and they start on another run. They they start. They go from four and nine to now where they're on fire again, and they can't they can't blow games even when they try in the bullpen right now. And they tried yesterday. They, sure they tried with two different relievers in the ninth inning, and they can't blow it. They are riding high right now, and the last time they were riding high, as you mentioned, was right before the Kendall Graveman trade when against the Houston Astros, Dylan Moore stepped up to the plate. Now the left-handers, 1-1 pitch to Dillon. Swing and a well-hit ball, deep to left field. Grandma, get out the right, bread and mustard. Grand salami time. Upper deck, left field, down the line. Dylan Moore with a grand salami. And the Mariners lead the Astros 11-8 in one of the greatest comebacks I've seen in a long, long time. It was an incredible comeback. And to their credit, the next night, even though they fell into a big hole early on, they did make that one a game as well. Third game of the series, not so much, though. And then you're thinking to yourself, okay, this team's good. But when they go up against a big boy like Houston, we're not so sure. But once again, the Mariners have a lot of momentum. They've won seven of their last nine, most of them against Texas. But they also took two or three against the Toronto Blue Jays over the weekend. So is that momentum, because there's no way that they can sucker punch themselves with some sort of trade or anything that would alter the mood of the clubhouse, at least that I'm aware of in the next 24 hours, is that momentum going to be enough to power them against a Houston team that almost was swept in four games by the Kansas City Royals 
though they were able to snap a four-game losing streak yesterday with a 6-3 win over Kansas City. Man, I mean, they're getting they're getting the Astros at the right time, right? Yeah. Like the Astros the Astros are kind of reeling, and they needed three runs and extra innings yesterday to avoid that, that fate. You have to win two or three. You have to win two or three for the rest of the season. This is an eight-game road trip, so you're looking that you've got to have five and hopefully six of, of the of these wins on this road trip. That's how I'm looking at it. It's it's not about sweeps. It's about stacking up victories because it's not one team you're chasing. You're, you're gonna you're in a cluster and you're toward the back of that cluster, and you got to win with the closing kick. You've got 40 games to kick your way through. You need to win two or three the rest of the way. You have left this season three series against the Astros coming up. You have six games, two series against the Oakland A's left. Check check that. Three series against the Oakland A's left, which is nine games. And then you have a one series against Boston. So you get 18 games against good teams. You add that all up from a series perspective. One, two, three, four, five, six series. How many of those series do you think they're going to need to win? Because that means that you're going to have – okay, we, if we're talking about winning two out of three, I, I guess I'm looking at it from a perspective of over a couple of games, are you going to be able to win more often than lose? As opposed to saying, hey, like the rest of the way, win one, win another, win another. I, I, I think that's sort of the way that you're looking at it right now. And I mean, especially if they could somehow find a way to take two or three, if not more than two or three on the road in Houston. Two or three. You got to take two or three in in every series, right? Like that's you've got to stack up victories, and they've won they won three or three so far. You need to come back. It's it's not about one team. You're not tracking down one team, so it's almost not like hey, these games are more important than other games because you've got the A's and the Astros, you've got the Yankees, you've got the Blue Jays, you've got the Red Sox now. Like all of these, you've got a clump of teams, so you don't. You don't have to be the fastest, but you have to be one of the fastest here. And you're not sure who you're going to end up stretching with at the at, at the finish line if that's where it comes down to. The starting pitching, Danny, is what I am questioning the most going into this series. Because it's Yusei Kikuchi who we have described as a nibbler from time to time when going up against good teams. We saw it against the Yankees. He hasn't been as good, right? Right. Like, really, over the past month. No. uh, He's getting hit harder. He's not not pitched as well. He's he is not he's not your he was the best pitcher you had. He had the best stuff for the first couple months. That's not true right now. He's on the hill tonight against Lance McCullers, who has pretty filthy stuff, but not always the most consistent. Logan Gilbert on the hill Saturday afternoon. He also has fallen back to earth over the last couple of his starts. And then you wrap it up on Sunday with the morning game with Tyler Anderson on the hill. And and that's another one that's interesting to me because Anderson has been really consistent, but this is probably going to be one of the tougher matches that he goes up against all Heck year yeah. long. Yeah, it's a really important series. You've gotten great starting pitching. Your starting pitching has been phenomenal all this month, and they need to keep it up. You 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 need to keep it up, and this is is it a likely? Is it about you have to sustain what would we would usually look at as an unsustainable level of performance? If the Mariners are going to make this, you're gonna you're gonna have to continue getting that starting pitching, and that's going to be hard this weekend. I, I do kind of wish that Marco Gonzalez and Chris Flexen 
could have been used against Houston as opposed to Texas. You get them against Oakland. It's That's not true. Like the two, it's not like the two games after this are any less important than the three games against Houston. No, that's true. I mean, this is this is probably, you know, you take a look the rest of the way. This is this is, I guess, the end of the the most difficult road stretch that they're going to have because a lot of their series afterwards, you got a little breaks against teams like Kansas City or teams like Arizona. Big series for the Seattle Mariners this weekend, and hopefully they can keep that momentum going that they have created last time, of course. Not quite able to do that against Houston. It's Danny and Gallant, 710, ESPN Seattle. You can text in 710-710 on the Mac and Jacks Brewing Company text line. We have been keeping an eye on Seahawks training camp, and of course we watched the first Seahawks preseason game against the Las Vegas Raiders. Who's the breakout star of training camp thus far? The guy that we are eyeing is someone that's playing a pretty critical position for Seattle this coming season. At least we think. We'll tell you who that is next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. We'll get into this a little bit later in the show. Where does yesterday's Mariners victory rank among the top wins of mm. the season? It's up there. And I, I think a top would be that the Grand Slam home run that Dylan Moore hit on the Tuesday against the Houston Astros, right? And then they traded Graveman the next day, and kind of the wind came out of everybody's sails. That's the high water mark of the year, but now with the Mariners 10 games over 500 yep. for the first time all season long, I think you could make that case because they were able to stand tall. It's hard for me, though, Daddy, to put it up there just because of the Diego Castillo experience. If you could remove that one from the game and it was just a sweep and they won like 7-2, to I actually think I would feel better about it than a dramatic victory. Very fair. Stay tuned to 710 ESPN Seattle today. We're giving away Seahawks preseason tickets in each of our shows. You listen for our cue to call, and you could win two tickets to see the Seahawks host the Chargers on August 28th. Nothing beats cheering on your team in person on game day. Single game tickets for the preseason matchup against the Chargers are still available at Seahawks.com slash tickets and our training camp coverage presented by Precore Home Fitness. Seattle's taking on Denver on Saturday. We're going to have Michael Bumpus that joins us in about 10 minutes. Has Ugo Amadi been the step-out star for training camp? You can definitely make a strong case. I would say more because of his versatility than anything. You saw it in the preseason game on that first drive where he was at times at nickel and he was at times at deep safety, so clearly there is a comfort in him that he can move all over the place. He's been pretty good. It's been difficult, I think, often to gauge what is a good practice for the defense because of the lack of contact that's been taking place at training camp. But yeah, I think Ugo Amadi certainly has to be up there. And yesterday was a pretty big day for him. He ends up punctuating. It was kind of a back-and-forth uh affair over the course of the day. There was a long pass that was completed to DK Metcalf, but the practice ends with Ugo Amadi picking off a throw that Russell Wilson had intended for DK Metcalf. He's gotten a lot of opportunities. He came into training camp seeing someone that, hey, he's going to compete with Marquise Blair for the nickelback spot, be the fifth defensive back, which really is a starter in today's NFL. I would be surprised if he's not in that spot now, just given that we've Marquise Blair's missed the past week because of uh, a sore knee. We're not sure when he'll be back, when he'll be available. 
the other thing is Ugo Amadi's gotten some time at safety in the defense. He started last week's preseason game uh, as a safety. I, I don't think anybody expects him to be starting when the season begins and Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams are out there, but they're clearly, he's getting some opportunities to show what he can do. He is. And, you know, when you watch him out there, you see that explosive burst that he brings to the table that is, I think, something that the Seahawks have been looking for at that position now that perhaps they are realizing that the long-rangey corners are going to be difficult for them to get. And you've seen it with DJ Reed, too, when he's been healthy. And I, I think you're seeing it a little bit with Trey Brown as well, who's been getting a lot of opportunities recently and perhaps has fought his way into the conversation for starting left cornerback this year with Akilah Witherspoon. Who do you find yourself rooting for? Trey Brown. In that battle between those mm-hmm. two, Trey Brown. In the battle between Ugo Amadi and Marquise Blair, I'm rooting for both. I feel the same way. I, I, I feel I'd like to see I'd like to see Trey Brown out there. I, I really and just because he was such a productive player in college mm-hmm. and that maybe Akella Witherspoon gets his, his his feet underneath him here, but I I'd really like to see I'd re- I'd really like to see a young corner that that has has emerged from college get a lot of opportunities and there's part of me that's fearful of the same thing that happened with Amadi when he was a rookie where they kept playing I think it was Jamar Adams that they kept playing in front of him yeah I, I'd, I'd like to see a younger player get a chance to, to to even learn on the job because I I think this team is better when it has younger players on the field the real question is going to be how much faith and trust do they have in Brown versus Witherspoon versus Trey Flowers, too, who right now is at right cornerback because DJ reads out with a groin injury. There are similarities between Flowers and Witherspoon, not just in terms of their frame, their height, but in terms of their ability to, or lack thereof, to overcome big plays against them. It's a track, it's a track record for both of them over the course of their careers thus far. You talk to anyone who watched Witherspoon in, in San Francisco, and it's the number one thing they say, right? Is yeah. that you could you could watch his confidence kind of erode, and I'm not sure if it's it's Flowers' confidence though. I think that is part of it. Flowers does everything right except when the ball's in the air. Like that's that's really how I look yeah. at it. He tackles how they want. He loves, and that's that's not surprising to me when you're like he was a safety in college. What what are safeties not usually asked to do? Have their back to the quarterback and and play coverage, and that's what you have to do in this defense as a corner, right? Like yeah. there takes you have to be calm and composed enough not to foul. Like you you can't you can't foul the dude, and you also have to be able to to make that decision to to pull the trigger and go for the ball. And that seems like where Trey Flowers has had the hardest time. Not that my perspective matters, but ha- having having played in that it, it is totally different that what you just laid out in terms of being able to sit back and look at the entire defense versus having to turn your back to the ball and there are some guys who are good with their back to the ball as far as running down the field and running down the sideline but it there's an art to being the kind of guy who can while you are with your back turned to the ball being able to figure out where the ball is in the air uh, you know it's sort of the same thing what, what, that you might see with punt returners too out there it's 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 this sort of sixth sense so with flowers with witherspoon I'm hoping for more. I, I, I don't know, though, that you're going to get much more than what you expect. Where with Brown, I feel like there's untapped potential that maybe doesn't all come out this year. But by the end of the season, 17-game year, can they be playing at a higher level with extra experience for him? I, I, I heard this interesting theory 
Danny, and I'm going to ask Bump about it when, when we bring him in for Blue 42, but with the game, with the, with the regular season being 17 games and sort of the way that some teams are approaching training camp in the preseason, I do wonder how they view, teams now view, most coaches that have been here for a while view the first quarter of the season. Because obviously mm-hmm. you want to win those games, but at the same time you're figuring things out. And that might be another spot where we continue to see perhaps some positional battles, both with nickel corner Ugo Amati versus Blair when assumingly Blair is healthy, but also with that cornerback spot too. I could see it being a work in progress. As we're talking about, as we're talking about Brown and, and Ugo Amati, I realize like one of the other things that I like about them, they're they're both playmakers. Like they yeah. both that both their both of their backgrounds include them making plays on the ball, getting interceptions and running it back. And if there's one thing that's been missing from from that secondary in general, it has been that kind of Shaquille Griffin was a good coverage guy. He was really good in coverage. What was the missing thing? What kept him from being great? What and he was a really good player. He made an alternate to the Pro Bowl. He's making plays on the ball. Yeah, being a playmaker. Both. I don't know if it's going to end up working out for Trey Brown and Ugo Amadi as corners because they both are shorter. They're smaller players than Seattle's usually spotlighted. But that's that's part of their pedigree. So I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we get to see some of that playmaking in their secondary. It is Danny Gallant. As Paul mentioned, we got Michael Bumpus. He's joining us next for Blue Forty Two.